Good evening and welcome again. Thank you for being here tonight. It's been a great day. We're appreciative for the refreshing rain. First time we've seen rain in a while. And so we're grateful for the rain. And we appreciate all the many blessings that God bestows on us. We're looking tonight at the life of, da at the life of David. And we're going to be talking in just a moment or two about David. And you could almost spend a quarter talking about the various things in the life of David. And tonight we've got to the best of our ability to try to condense everything. And I know that there's some key points, and you'll see those on the screen in a minute or two, with regard to the life of David. I'm not going to follow any particular order in the lesson tonight. I want to really just bring out some highlights in the life of David. And I want to begin by calling your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 16, the passage Jordan read a moment ago. Uh, I do want to say we appreciate those of you who are visiting. As always, thank you for coming our way. We hope that you feel welcome here. We want you to know how much we appreciate you coming our way. And if we can do anything to assist you, we'd love to be able to do that. And if you're looking for a church home, as always, please consider the work here. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have to serve God in this community. Tonight, as we think about David, probably the first thing that comes to mind as we reflect upon the life of this great warrior is the fact that he was a man after God's own heart. And you remember in Acts chapter 13, we have a record of the Apostle Paul preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. And Paul on that occasion, as he provided a narrative of the history of the Israelite nation, talked about David, the son of Jesse, and he said that he was a man after God's own heart, and then he made this observation on behalf of God. A man who would do all of his will. David, with all of his blemishes, was quite a man. He was a man of great faith, and he was a man who was faithful to God. Despite his faults, blemishes, and so tonight, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, last week in our study, remember we talked about Saul. Saul was the first king anointed by God. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the children of Israel wanted a king to be like the nations about them. And so God gave them a king, a man by the name of Saul. And Saul disobeyed God, 1 Samuel chapter 15, as we noted last week. Because of that, God removed him, took the kingdom from him. Now, it took some time for Saul to eventually step to the side. He would die and later be replaced by David. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we have a record of Samuel the prophet going and anointing the son of Jesse, young fellow by the name of David, to be the eventual king over the Israelite nation. And David would serve in this capacity for a period of 40 years. So I want you to look very quickly at verse 7 again, the passage read a moment ago. In verse 7, here, herein lies what I would say is the criterion at which God judges people. It's not based upon outward appearance, not based upon our substance, but rather it has to do with the heart. So look at verse 7. God said to Samuel, Do not look, at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. 
For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now that was true then, it's true today, isn't it? Now there are a lot of people in our world today, they are judged on the basis of physical appearance. It might be the case that some are judged on the basis of their popularity, their prominence, their stature in the community, in corporate America, etc. But God said, He doesn't look as man looks, doesn't judge as man judges, but rather God looks at the heart. There's a lot said about the heart in both the Old and New Testaments. For example, you remember Solomon, the son of David. Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs in chapter 4, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. And you remember over in chapter 23, verse 7, again, Solomon would say, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Jesus would say during his earthly ministry, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So there's something to be said about guarding our heart, to understand that God looks at the heart. And so in, you, in looking at the life of King David, David, as Paul said in the long ago, as God said to Samuel, David was a man after the heart of Almighty God. Now, as we think about the great faith of this man, David, probably one of the highlights in his life is found over in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In chapter 7, you recall David determined in his heart that he was going to build God a house. And he said to Nathan that he would build him a house. And you remember Nathan responded by saying, that sounds like a good idea, you need to do that. But God came back and said, David, you're not going to build a house for my name. And there were reasons for that. But I want you to note, if you would, what is said down in verse 12, because this is really significant in the grand scheme of redemption. Now, we talk about God's plan of redemption and how both the Old and New Testaments are a reflection of that. And we've said many times the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, we have God through Nathan, telling David that he would later set up a kingdom or a house and that this would come through his lineage. So look at verse 12. He said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, some would say that God here was talking about Solomon. Well, that wasn't the case. But rather, God had in mind the house of David that would be set up or established. 
that house or kingdom would be established by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, I want to call attention to a couple of passages in the New Testament. Now you remember when John the Baptist began preaching, he and the Lord Jesus began preaching and teaching. They both echoed the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, as you well know, promised to build the church. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, it was Jesus who said that there were some standing there on that occasion that would not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God come with power. Question, when did the kingdom of God come with power? Is there any way that we can trace out the establishment of this kingdom and link it to what is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Well, the answer would be yes. Now, note again in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And then he said, He shall build a house for my name. Now, it was Paul who said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, you remember in writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, he would say, but if I tarry long, that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So now we have something about this house that God promised to build going all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah saw the church as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. And he said that they would go up to the house of the God of Jacob. That's significant. So with that in mind, turn now to the book of Luke. And I want you to see something in Luke chapter 1. Here we have an account of the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. And in verse 30, here's what the record says. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Now listen to this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him, now note, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now just let that sink in for a minute. Here's Gabriel, Gabriel telling Mary that she's going to have a son. That son was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And it would be through Jesus that all people would enjoy the forgiveness of sins. But Gabriel is saying that God is going to establish a kingdom, that Jesus will receive a kingdom. Now having said that, let's look over in the book of Acts for a minute. You remember in Luke chapter 24 in verse 49, Jesus instructed the apostles to tarry in Jerusalem. He said, until you're endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus prior to ascending to heaven. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, 
that they were told that they would receive power from on high. They would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and he said to the end of the earth. So in Acts chapter 2, what do we have? Pentecost Day, people are present in Jerusalem to observe that feast. Peter and the other apostles, they receive that baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 at verse 4, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, now with that in mind, drop down and note beginning in verse 29. And listen, if you would, to what Peter had to say concerning the resurrected Christ. Now, you remember he pointed out that they had crucified and slain the Son of God, that they were well aware of the one that they had put to death. So in verse 29, he said, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. His tomb was with us to this day. The people who were assembled in Jerusalem for the observance of Pentecost. Would anyone there have disputed the fact that David had been dead and buried for years? Not a soul. But now note, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that of the fruit of his body, listen to this, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Well, what kind of throne are we talking about? It's not a physical throne, not a fleshly throne, but rather this is a spiritual throne. Now, you know, there are a lot of folks in the world today. Matter of fact, I was listening to John MacArthur this week. And he was talking about how there's coming a day in which the Lord's going to set up a kingdom here on earth. Listen, the kingdom has already come. It's already here. God established the kingdom 2,000 years ago. Some would say that when Jesus came to earth, He failed in His efforts to set up the kingdom because He was rejected by the Jewish people. Well, to understand that God wasn't caught off guard by that. Do you remember back in Isaiah chapter 53? Isaiah writing 750 years before Jesus came to earth said this about the Messiah, the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. God knew that when Jesus came to planet earth, there would be people who would reject him, namely the Jewish people. So when Jesus came and began preaching and teaching the coming of the kingdom of God, either he established that kingdom, fulfilling prophecy, or he did not. If he didn't, then we have a problem, don't we? Because God promised that it would be established. If that promise failed, what would prevent other promises from failing? So now note, verse 31. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Is Jesus now sitting upon the spiritual throne of David? Yes or no? Yes, He is. And what was it the angel said 
to Mary. He would reign over the house of Jacob forever. All right, so here's a question. If God promised that through the lineage of David, a kingdom would be established that would stand forever, and Daniel, by the way, foretold of a coming kingdom. John preached about it. Jesus preached about it. Do we have definitive proof in the New Testament that the kingdom of God is here? I think we do. Turn with me now to the book of Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, I want you to listen to what Paul said, beginning in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Now note, and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. If the kingdom is not here, then the Apostle Paul never got that memo. Paul said that one of the ways that we enjoy the blessings and favors of God, really the way that we enjoy the blessings and favors of God, is to obey the gospel by which, at which time, we enter the kingdom. It's in that sphere. He said we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now turn over, if you would, and look at Revelation chapter 1. Note Revelation chapter 1. Listen now to John in the Revelation. Pick up in verse 4. John writes, Grace to you, peace from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, to him who loved us, washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now look at verse 6. And has made us, what? Kings and priests. Does God today have a kingdom? Yes, He does. Well, whose kingdom is it? It's the Lord's kingdom, isn't it? And when we obey the gospel of Christ, we become a part of that kingdom. So what John is saying is that God has made us a kingdom and a priesthood. Isn't that what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2? When he wrote that we are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And by the way, if you have a kingdom, don't you need a king? Do we have a king today? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 for a moment. I think it's important for us to look at these verses together. And it might be that you want to make some notations because in your discussions with Friends and family members, sometimes questions will, riot, will arise about the kingdom and about the church and the establishment of the kingdom of God and David's kingdom. Now understand that all those great prophecies that were foretold in the Old Testament, they have come to fruition. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at verse 13. Paul said, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which He will manifest in His own time, 
He who is the blessed and only potentate. That is, He is the only sovereign one. Now note, the King of kings, that is, Jesus is the King over all kings. And He is the Lord over all lords. One other verse I want to share with you. Turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are a lot of folks that are mistaken concerning the kingdom. They view the kingdom as something that has not yet come to fruition. They're awaiting in their minds the kingdom to be established on earth, for the Lord to sit and to reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes, He's not coming to set up a kingdom. Well, how do I know that? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And listen to what Paul said in verse 24. Now, Paul here in this context is discussing the resurrection of Christ. He has validated the fact that Jesus died, rose again, that His resurrection was verified by numerous witnesses. Based upon the resurrected Christ, He gives us assurance that one day we too will come forth from the tomb. But in verse 24, Paul said, I'll tell you what, back up and look at verse 20. Let's just note the context here. Paul said, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at His coming. Now look at verse 24, significant. Then comes the end. All right, what end? It's called the last day in John chapter 6. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God, the Father. When He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Paul here, looking down into the distant ages of time and saying that when Jesus comes as a thief in the night on that great and final day, what's He going to do with the kingdom? Set it up? Not at all. He's going to deliver up the kingdom. To whom? To God the Father. So with that in mind, to simply understand that the kingdom of God foretold back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And again, think about how both the Old and New Testament fit hand in glove. You know, sometimes people are not interested in studying the Old Testament. And I understand that we live under the law of Christ today, the New Testament. But if you want to have a grasp of what's being said in the New Testament, you have to understand something about the Old Testament. Now bear in mind, that Zechariah said in Zechariah chapter 6 that Jesus would be a king on His throne. And not just a king on His throne, but He would also be a priest on His throne. Jesus functions today, and by the way, in Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible says He has passed into the heavens. Jesus is seated where? At the right hand of Almighty God, where He welds all authority, what Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3 at verse 22. Now go back with me again to the Old Testament 
time's almost gone. Let me just very quickly allude to the fact that one of the things that stands out about the life of David, he was fearless, wasn't he? You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David was willing to go toe-to-toe with Goliath. The Bible tells us that Goliath stood over nine feet in height. I don't know what the tallest, I don't know how tall the tallest person in the world is today. But I have seen, as you have, some who play in the NBA. Shaquille O'Neal comes to mind. Now you talk about, you talk about a man, a guy that's built like a tank. Now how'd you like to battle him on the court day after day? Shaquille O'Neal was nothing compared to Goliath. And David was willing to stand toe-to-toe with this Philistine. I want you to see something about the faith of David. You remember, for example, Goliath taunted David in the long ago. And I love the courage that he demonstrated. In verse 42, the Bible says, When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and good-looking. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He didn't know anything about the God that David served, did he? And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth, now listen to this, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So we talk about the death of Goliath and the victory of David. That was a solemn reminder to a pagan world that there is a God in heaven. Brother Billy's been talking about the children of Israel and how they went into the promised land by faith and settled in in that land. And there were a lot of pagans in that day. And yet... They became a light for God in a pagan land. All right, very quickly, before our time's gone, let's just talk about the faults and forgiveness of David. There are really two things that stand out in my mind with regard to the faults of David. And as we talk about these, let me just make this comment. David was a good man, a man after God's own heart. Good men are not perfect men. David was not infallible. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, David succumbed to temptation, didn't he? And you can go back and read the narrative of his relationship with Bathsheba and how he had her husband Uriah the Hittite killed on the front line of battle, tried to conceal everything that had happened. Nathan the prophet comes, points out that he's in sin, and David acknowledges his sin, doesn't he? 
There's another account over in 2 Samuel chapter 24 where David makes the decision to number Israel and Judah. There's been a lot of comments, a lot of questions as to why he wanted to do this. I tend to think that it was because of pride and wanted to know just how strong he was militarily speaking. Joab tried to dissuade him from doing this, but he did it anyway. And because of that, God sent a plague among the children of Israel. 70,000 people died because of what David did. So here's the point. You go back and look at 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 when David sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah the Hittite killed. Were there consequences to his actions? There were. When David sought to number Israel and Judah, there were consequences. And here's what really stands out in my mind. Sometimes what we do affects us, yes. But there are times when because of our actions... Others are affected in a negative way. Go back and look very quickly at the account. Note, if you would, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, I want to just call attention to something very, very briefly. You remember when Nathan stood before David? In verse 9, he said, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? He said, You killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, in other words, because you've done this, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. There, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I'll take your wives before your eyes, give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. Because of David's actions, other people within his own family were going to suffer. There's an old saying, for every action there is a corresponding reaction. And Paul put it like this, whatever we sow, we reap, right? And so, we're not an island to ourselves, but rather our actions, the decisions we make, not only affect us, but in many cases affect the lives of many other people. And again, I would encourage you to go back and read 2 Samuel chapter 24 this week and note the numbering of the nation. As I said a moment ago, maybe it was pride, wanted to see how strong he was from a military vantage point. And so 70,000 people died as a result of that. Very quickly, look now at Psalm 51. It was said of David, he was a man after God's own heart. And I really think in Psalm 51, which has been called the penitential psalm, we have insight into the heart of David the king. And this is after he had sinned with Bathsheba. He said, have mercy upon me, O God. Now listen to this. According to your loving kindness, 
according to the multitude of your tender mercies. David knew something about God's mercy, God's love, and God's grace. To understand that there is a God in heaven who loves us and who is more than willing to forgive us. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Look at verse 3. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. David was forthright when it came to sin. Didn't try to hide it. Well, I guess he did initially. But he was forthright. He took ownership of what he had done. And God blessed him for that. And so, in this life, there are times when we, like David, make mistakes. Say things, do things, go places that have no business being involved in. But to know that there is a God who will forgive. That there is a God who is merciful and kind and gracious. When we meet the terms of pardon, the assurance given to us is that God will fully cleanse us from all sin. It's a great blessing. It might be that you're here tonight. Your life's not what it ought to be. We all need Christ. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you need to do so. Why? Because you need the blood of Jesus in your life. You need the blood of Jesus that will wash away all of your sins. Not just some of your sins, but all of your sins. So how would you do that? Well, you need to believe Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of all your sins. That's a change of mind followed by a change in how you live. And then to confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Be buried with Him in a watery grave of baptism. You die to the love and the practice of sin. You rise to walk in newness of life. A new man emerges. A new person emerges. As Paul said, we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And then we live faithfully, day in and day out. I said a minute ago, David was not infallible. He made his share of mistakes. When I read Scripture, the thing that stands out to me is, as God's people, sometimes we make mistakes, don't we? And here's what John said, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's willing to forgive. So, God's first law of pardon, God's second law of pardon. If you're here tonight, your life's not what it ought to be, maybe you need the prayers of the church. We're here to help, to encourage, to help you in your Christian life so that we might all one day be together in heaven. Whatever your need may be, if you need to respond to the invitation tonight, you need the prayers of the church, please come. We'll pray with you, we'll pray for you, and God will abundantly pardon us. We stand and sing.